Welcome to the Seven Things EMS podcast, a continuing education offering of Limmer Education. Seven Things EMS podcast is designed to give you what you need to succeed in EMS. It's conversational, informational, and without the fluff. And welcome to another Seven Things EMS. I'm your host, Dan Limmer from Limmer Education. I am thrilled today for two reasons. The first is that we're going to talk about pathophysiology, an important foundation for everything we need to learn in EMS. But the second part is that I get to do it with my longtime friend, Joe Mistovich. And I will note, longtime friend and competing EMT author, Joe Mistovich. Joe is a longtime professor at Youngstown State University. He's published a bunch of uh, books out there in EMS. He's a prince among men. And uh, we don't spend a lot of time in the beginning of this audio series because we like to get right down to business, right down to those seven things. So I'll say welcome, Joe, and we'll get started. Thanks, Dan. All right. Number one, hypoxia affects the brain, but the way it affects the brain provides clues that are important in the primary assessment. Let's get right into it. Okay. And, and you know, through our discussions and, you know, and in our uh, presentations together and so forth, you know, I'm a firm believer, uh, like you, that pathophysiology is important to understand because it provides so many clues to the EMS practitioner, whether you're an EMR, an EMT, advanced EMT, or paramedic, it provides a lot of clues. And a lot of times these are subtle clues. Um, that really will enhance your ability to assess the patient and also trending of the patient's uh, you know, condition, whether they're improving, deteriorating or not. A lot of these little signs and symptoms are things that you have to pay attention to. I say a lot of times, you know, people will say like, well, I found uh, the skin's pale cone clammy and they document it. And it's like, oh, I got to remember to put that in my pre-hospital care report. But they really don't pay much attention to what it actually means about the patient. And so that's, I said, you know, understanding these little, um, you know, little pearls of pathophysiology are really important. And so, you know, um, right. Hypoxia affects the brain. We know that the brain tissue is the most sensitive to, uh, any insults of hypoxia and the hypoxia is coming from hypoxemia, which obviously hypoxemia is an inadequate amount of oxygen found in the blood because the blood we know is the number one carrier of the uh, oxygen to the brain. So it's interesting, you know, and, you know, at times people say like, well, you know, uh, they weren't cyanotic. And I say, well, you know, when they, when the patient becomes cyanotic, you're so far behind the ball at that point that it's going to be real tough to, to recover. And so therefore you have to start looking for these very subtle signs and symptoms of hypoxia or hypoxemia. So we already know the brain is the most sensitive organ to hypoxia. And because of that, it is going to respond relatively quickly. It's, it's kind of like the heart. When the heart gets irritable, uh, you start having, you know, dysrhythmias. Well, when the brain gets irritable because it's hypoxic, it starts sending out impulses, okay? And um, what happens is, so the brain gets hypoxic. And one of the centers in the brain that's extremely uh, sensitive to this hypoxia is the medulla. And we know that medulla houses the respiratory center, the cardiac center, and the vasomotor center. And the cardiac center has both the cardioinhibitory and the cardioaccelatory center. So when the brain starts getting hypoxic, 
what it does instantaneously, and this is within seconds, it's sensing this hypoxia, it triggers the medulla to start sending out impulses. It's almost like a distress signal that the brain needs more oxygen. And so its response by the medulla is to send out impulses from the cardioaccelerator center, the vasomotor center, and the respiratory center. And so you start looking at this, so, so, so okay, so that's great. So clinically, though, when you apply it, what you start to look at is what are the responses from the medulla? Well, if the cardioaccelerator center is stimulated, what you're going to see clinically is the patient starts to exhibit some tachycardia. Now, initially, the patient's resting heart rate might be 70. And you say, well, you know, what's normally heart rate? Well, a lot of patients don't know that. But if they do, or if you've had this patient before, you might say, or even just judging. So you have a uh, 32-year-old, you know, patient, and you say, well, I would speculate that their heart rate, probably resting heart rate, would be in the 70s. And now they're at 92. And so although 92 is not considered tachycardia for that patient, it is obviously, you know, a, a, a physiologic response, and their heart rate is higher. And so suddenly you start looking at these things. You start looking at this. So the cardioaccelerator center um, triggers the heart. It actually sends impulses to the SA node to increase the speed of the heart rate. And then also what it does is it sends impulses to increase the force of conduction, okay, which again, we know that is inotropy. We know that the increasing the speed at which the heart is beating is the chronotropy, and then also the dromotropy. If you want to increase how fast the heart beats, you have to increase the speed at which the impulse gets through the conduction system. So we have an increase in inotropy, which is contractility, an increase in chronotropy, which is an increase in heart rate, and an increase in dromotropy, which is the speed through the conduction system. Now, this will make sense, you know, um, in, in a second here, is why, why the brain is doing this. There's a reason for it. And the other thing that gets stimulated is the vasomotor center. And the vasomotor center controls the vessel size, and it changes the resistance in the vessels, primarily in the arterioles, you know, in the distal end of the artery right before it uh, enters into the capillary, um, and in the small arteries. It's not the large arteries, but it's the arterioles and also the smaller arteries. And so what happens there is, well, the vasomotor center actually increases the systemic vascular resistance through vasoconstriction. And so clinically, you say, so what are we seeing there? Well, when you start vasoconstricting, the first, the first organ, obviously, that's going to be affected is going to be the skin. And so when you start squeezing that nice, warm red blood out of the skin, that skin starts becoming pale because the red blood's not out there. It starts becoming cool because the nice warm red blood's not out there. And also you start uh, starting uh, start to feel this, um, you know, diaphoresis, this, this clamminess. And, and that actually is from um, stimulation of the sweat glands, okay, by the nervous system. And, 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 you know, one has to wonder, so why is the brain, why is the medulla increasing the heart rate and trying to increase systemic vascular resistance when it's hypoxic? Well, the bottom line is this, the brain thinks if I can get more blood because blood carries oxygen, I'm going to get more oxygen. And so it, its intent is to increase the blood flow to the brain. And the only way to increase blood flow to the brain is to increase blood pressure. And so if we go back and we say, well, so what's the equation for blood pressure? 
Well, blood pressure equals cardiac output times systemic vascular resistance. And we know that if we could increase cardiac output, we could increase blood pressure. If we increase blood pressure, we increase oxygenation of the brain, in theory. That's what the, that's what the body is hoping. And at the same time, we say, well, systemic vascular resistance is part of that equation, too. If we increase systemic vascular resistance through vasoconstriction, we can increase blood pressure. We increase blood pressure, we increase oxygenation of the brain. Again, this is the brain's theory. And so what does the body do? What does the medulla intend to do? It intends to increase cardiac output. Well, how do you increase cardiac output? Well, we know cardiac output is determined by heart rate and stroke volume. So if I can increase heart rate, I can increase cardiac output. If I increase cardiac output, I increase blood pressure and hopefully get more oxygen to the brain. Therefore, that's why the heart rate's increasing. The body's trying to increase the heart rate in an attempt to get more blood flow to the brain. To the stroke volume now, the only way to increase stroke volume is you got to put more volume, which in this patient, they don't have the ability to increase their volume. They have their normal volumic. They have a normal blood volume, um, unless it's a hypovolemic patient, but that's a whole different case. But one other way to increase stroke volume is to increase the force of contraction. So therefore, that's your inotropy. By increasing the force of contraction, you might be able to increase stroke volume. If you increase stroke volume, you increase cardiac output, you increase cardiac output, you increase blood pressure, and hopefully get more blood to the brain. So clinically, right, I'm, going you- you, I'm going to stop you for one second. Go ahead. I think that we've just had about seven or eight minutes of what some people are probably thinking is some heavy duty pathophysiology. But the truth is, this is stuff that should be taught in every EMT class, but it's not. This concept of understanding is something we lost with the EMTB curriculum and we're trying to bring back and that this stuff is so important. The concept of not memorizing signs and symptoms versus understanding what goes on is what we're getting here. So I just wanted just to stop and say, as you started this uh, section with, is that you need to understand and that this is the stuff that many people probably should have been taught in class. I would even venture to say there's some medics out there that never got this. So this is just really important stuff. And when we look at skin changes, color, temperature, and condition, we say, oh, it's, it's shock. But now we're saying even hypoxia can do that. Right. You know, it's so true, Dan. And, and, and that's, I'll tell you this, you know, just this little story. You're, you're so right. Is I'm teaching an EMR refresher, an emergency medical responder refresher right now. And I'm presenting this stuff to these firefighters. It's a group of 10 firefighters who really want to do what's right for the patient. And it's funny because they tell me, you know, Joe, we've never learned this. But when I present this to them, they are just so excited because they're like, well, this makes sense. And, and you know, Dan, my saying is that all makes thing. sense. If you yep. can understand a little bit of pathophysiology, a little bit of anatomy, a little bit of physiology, it all makes sense. And you're right. And, and, and so here's these 10 EMRs that are looking at this going, well, this is going to change completely how I look at patients. And, and that's the whole purpose of this. Because again, you know, when you start saying, so the thing is when you get on the scene and you have a patient who, who's sitting there and, and you you begin your, your primary assessment and you, you start noticing, hey, this patient's a little bit tachycardic, their skin's a little bit pale, cool, clammy, you know, 
They may have some tremors. Um, you know, while there's an increase in respiratory, you know, rate and they're breathing a little bit deeper. One thing that has to pop into your head is hypoxia, hypoxia. Now, again, through your differentials, you may rule it out. And we, we know that we, we're huge advocates of possibilities to probabilities. But one of the possibilities has to be, is this patient hypoxic? And it's these subtle signs and symptoms that actually could, could give you those clues. You know, and so so another is, you know, um, you know, so the 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 uh, respiratory center in the medulla then starts sending impulses to the DRG and the VRG, the dorsal respiratory group and the ventral respiratory group. And so what's happening here is these two centers is primarily the VRG. They're receiving these impulses. And so what do they do? They increase the number of impulses to the respiratory muscles, the diaphragm and the external intercostals to increase the rate at which they're contracting. So therefore, what do you get? Uh, not only the rate, but also the force. So you get an increase in respiratory rate and an increase in respiratory debt, depth. And these are very subtle signs and symptoms. But also, one has to realize that initially, this is all just a neural. It's a direct nerve stimulation. These are actually electrical impulses that are being sent to the heart to the respiratory muscles and the vessels. And this is a very short-lived thing. This can only be sustained for, for a minute or two. It's not long, at most a couple minutes. And so one of the impulses that's being sent out is going to the adrenal medulla gland, the adrenal glands that sits on top of the kidney. And when that adrenal medulla gets stimulated, well, we know what gets released is epinephrine and norepinephrine. So suddenly now you get this epinephrine and norepinephrine dump, which has alpha-1, alpha-2, beta-1, beta-2, which now is providing the long-term sustained effects, okay? And one thing I want to mention, too, is the alpha is causing the, uh, the um, constant vasoconstriction. The beta-1 is continuing the increase in heart rate, force of contraction, speed of, speed of uh, conduction. Beta-1... Uh, or the beta one is the cardiac beta two. One thing I want to point out is beta two is the smooth muscle dilator, the bronchodilator. But one other effect is when skeletal muscle receives beta two stimulation, it causes tremors. And this is where you might see the patient starting to tremor a little bit. And that's from beta two stimulation. It's like if you give a beta two uh, agonist, uh, like a buterol, whether it be by meter dose inhaler or nebulizer, and you start noticing your patient having some tremors afterwards, that's a common side effect. And it's because that beta-2 stimulating the skeletal smooth muscle. And the other thing is when epinephrine and norepinephrine are secreted, they have a lot of alpha-1. And alpha-1 is what stimulates the sweat glands and causes you to begin to sweat. You're getting clammy. Now, the key to all this is if the patient's hypoxia is worsening, the medulla is saying, send more blood, more blood, more blood by raise the pressure, raise the pressure, raise the pressure. So what happens? The heart rate gets higher. The respiratory rate gets higher. The tidal volume gets deeper. The skin gets more pale because there's greater vasoconstriction and more clammy because there's more alpha-1 out there. And that's a long-term effect. Now, we know we have pulse oximetry. We all know that. The pulse ox oximetry is a great tool to determine hypoxemia but this is very specific to determine hypoxia of the brain. And so these are those subtle things. 
And again, it's not just in the primary assessment, it's also in your continued assessment. So if your treatment is effective and you're, redu you're reducing the hypoxia to the brain, you should start seeing a decrease in tachycardia, the skin becoming a little bit less pale, cool and clammy, going back to more normal, respiratory rates going down, tidal volumes going down. And, um, you know, you see this in front of your eyes. And, but again, these are the subtle signs and symptoms that you have to be looking for. And, it, you know, it's so funny because a lot of EMT, EMTs, Dan, especially you know this, you know, you ask them to say, well, you know, what's a, what's a sign of hypoxia? And, and most of them, their number one answer is cyanosis. You know, in order for the patient to become cyanotic, again, you're so far behind the game because they are so severely hypoxic at that point. So my response to that is, what's, what's a great sign of hypoxia? Pale, cool, clammy skin, um, increase in respiratory rate, increase in tidal volume, tachycardia, and tremors. Now, again, we also know for this, for the brain to start becoming altered, also tastes a significant hypoxia. These are early. We're talking about slight decreases in their hypoxemia or in their oxygen status, slight hypoxemia that's going to trigger these signs and symptoms. So for, again, you say, well, how's pathophysiology related to, how's it related clinically? And that's a question people always ask because they don't want to learn the pathophysics. This is exactly right because it makes you so much better of a clinician and the ability to assess your patients and treat them. What what I'm what I'm thinking here, and, and you know, we've been uh, presenting together for a long time, and you're Mr. Pathophysiology, and I'm the wow. Let's see how this relates to the street. And what I'm thinking is uh, one is that this will go into our second uh, thing here, but also we are so hung up on ninety four percent, and we're so we're so mixed up in our heads about when to give oxygen and when not to give oxygen. I think what you've really done in this first section is been able to tell people that if you see certain things, I would even venture to say, regardless of what the pulse ox says, you should be looking at this and saying, this can be hypoxia. The body's responding in a way to show that there's crisis. So you've described a fight or flight response and that it's trying to feed the brain so we should assist in feeding the brain by giving some oxygen. And we don't always have to go with the big guns with a non-rebreather. I think we've forgotten how much a nasal cannula can really do and how much comfort it is for the patient. But I think you've really helped define for our listeners that there's a lot more than pulse ox in the oxygen decision. If your patient has that, I'll just call it the shocky look, that that's an indication for oxygen. Exactly. And that, and that is 100% the key to this. And Dan, you remember when the pulse oximeters just came out. And if you recall, we, we used to teach students, well, don't rely on the pulse oximeter. Rely on your clinical findings, because that's really going to tell you whether your patient's hypoxic or not. Well, they've refined pulse oximetry, and pulse oximeters are pretty accurate. But like you said, you know, take a patient in a cold environment, that pulse oximeter it could be inaccurate, you know, or a state of poor perfusion. But the key that poor you perfusion. said is, yeah. yeah. And again, you walk into a scene and you see tachycardia, pale, cool, clammy skin, increased respiratory rate, increased tidal volume. You start thinking two things. One is hypoxia, 
import perfusion. The key is not to go, okay, hey, market in the PCR. The key is to say, what's going on with my patient? What is it? And again, those possibilities to probabilities and through hopefully a good assessment, um, you know, one's going to come down to a probability of why this is happening. But I couldn't agree with you more. It's like, and, and, and the statement you said is so true, regardless of what the pulse ox is telling you. If your intuition is saying something's not right here, and I think they might be hypoxic, absolutely agree with you. Put them on nasal cannula, two liters, and you can't believe what that might actually do. And if you put them on a nasal cannula, two liters, and these things start improving, then you know that you caught something. But it, but again, if you don't understand this, most people are just like, well, you know, yeah, they're tachycardic, and whoa, look, they're more tachycardic now, but they don't put it together. This whole thing is put it all together because it makes sense, and it's telling that story about your patient. And the other thing is the trending. Look at the trends. Is it worsening? Is it improving? Is it staying the same? Well, let's roll into number two. I think it's it's peripherally related, and I think we're going to get a little bit deeper into the concepts here, and I think that's good. I'll also say to our listeners, you're going to hear some pretty important terms, uh, some big terms, things you probably should have had in your class and didn't. I'm going to ask you to lean into this. This understanding is going to change the way you practice, and it's important that we do this. The second one, the relationship between hemoglobin, anemia, and cyanosis uh, may surprise you that the way that we transport oxygen and some of the relations to what we just talked about is important as well. And we've already said cyanosis is a late sign. It's not the not the thing that should be you should be making your decision on. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I suppose this question all the time, not only to my EMT classes but also to my paramedic classes. And, and it was interesting to find out that they a lot of times couldn't, couldn't grasp the relationship until it was explained, um, especially with the anemic patient. So the key here is, you know, understanding the hemoglobin, okay, is on the surface of the red blood cell. And hemoglobin has four iron sites, and those four iron sites are binding sites with oxygen. And so one thing we know about hemoglobin, and this is basically how the pulse oximeter works, the pulse oximeter reads, it has a red light and an infrared light, and it basically is shining that light through the skin and is able to determine through the infrared light and the red light how much hemoglobin is actually saturated with oxygen. And that's how we get a pulse oximeter reading. And so it's hemoglobin that is the key, and again, is found on the surface of the red blood cells. So if you're losing red blood cells, you're obviously losing hemoglobin. And if you're losing hemoglobin, you're losing the ability to transport oxygen. So the, this, is a, this is an interesting question. Well, before we go there, I'll say, so if you have all the hemoglobin in your body, and we, we already said pulse oximetry is reading the amount of hemoglobin saturated with oxygen versus hemoglobin not saturated. And one thing that, you know, EMTs and advanced EMTs and EMRs and paramedics know is if we have hemoglobin that's not saturated with oxygen, if we have hemoglobin coming through a vessel and it ha it's desaturated, it's very low in oxygen, it has carbon dioxide attached to it, um, what do we see? And, and most often people say, well, it's going to look blue because hemoglobin that doesn't have oxygen attached has this bluish color to it. 
and that's true. Deoxygenated hemoglobin appears as blue. That's why your veins in your body look blue or greenish blue instead of red. You know, arteries, if you see your arteries, would look red because that's saturated hemoglobin. So we established that. Hemoglobin with oxygen attached to it um, looks red. Hemoglobin that doesn't have oxygen attached to it is it's deoxygenated, desaturated, looks blue or cyanotic. You say, well, so the, the point to remember there is hemoglobin then is what's responsible for changing the color of the skin. You have to have hemoglobin to change the color of the skin. And so if you have a lot of hemoglobin that's not attached to oxygen, hypoxemia, the skin starts looking, in a later stage, the skin starts looking cyanotic because that hemoglobin is now taking on the appearance of being blue. I think if people we have are hemoglobin. having a big, whoa, this does make sense moment here. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and it's important. But again, it's important clinically to apply it clinically too. And if you have hemoglobin attached to oxygen, your skin's going to take on this relatively normal color. Now, again, through vasoconstriction, we're going to start shunting that to the body. But you know, well, you know as well as I do, Dan, teaching students, is like you just don't look at the skin. You look at the oral mucosa. You look at the conjunctiva. You look at other core areas to the body. The skin may be pale, but those areas still look pretty red, meaning that we still have that hemoglobin. So here's the thing. So the bottom line to this is in order to change the color of the skin based on a hypoxemic state or or whatever state it would be, you have to have hemoglobin. So I would ask my students, so an anemic patient, and there's a lot of different types of anemia, but the bottom line is this, they have an inability to either have an appropriate amount of hemoglobin, they don't have the iron sites, regardless of what the cause is, they're not carrying as much oxygen as you and I, because they have some chronic condition or short-term condition of anemia. So I'd ask my students, so is an anemic patient who becomes hypoxemic, are they going to become cyanotic quicker or is it going to take longer? And students would you know, ponder that question and a majority of them would say, well, they're going to become cyanotic quicker. You know, and they'd say, well, again, it takes hemoglobin to change the color of the skin. What's the color? You know, it's funny because we could go to the mall, be walking around and look at a person and go, damn, they're anemic. You know, just because they look what? Pale. Because they don't have the hemoglobin to make their skin look normal. So therefore, they're pale because... They don't have the hemoglobin. So you look at this, you say, well, in order to make a patient look hypoxic, you have to have hemoglobin that's not attached to oxygen. And because you don't have the large amounts of hemoglobin, you can't turn the skin cyanotic because you don't have the hemoglobin to do so. So an anemic patient could be severely hypoxemic and still not presenting with cyanosis. They're going to look pale but they're not going to be cyanotic, but they're going to be wow. tachycardic. They're going to have the vasoconstriction, the clammy skin, the increased respiratory rate and so forth. Everything we talked about previously. So you say, one of the well, things I've heard you say, oh, I'm sorry. One of the no, things I've ahead. always heard you say when you speak at presentations on the road is that cyanosis is a very late sign. 
How Absolutely. late? Well, again, so, so, and again, there's why Paul's sex symmetry is important. And, and people have to realize that Paul's sex symmetry has to catch up to the hypoxemia too. Pulse oximetry is not giving you instantaneous readings. It 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 ha- it takes some time before it starts to identify hypoxemia. That's why, again, looking at those subtle signs and symptoms, and you said earlier, Dan, that look, if you're seeing this stuff and your intuition is saying, I think they're hypoxic, but my pulse ox is still at 94, start them on some O2. Nobody's going to ever criticize anyone for doing that because your intuition and your assessment findings are saying this. So cyanosis, Dan, it takes a significant amount of desaturation of hemoglobin to cause a person to become cyanotic. So again, as far as time, it's a longer period of time because they have to desaturate, but it also depends on the severity of the condition. How severely, you know, um, uh, is is there oxygenation, um, you know, uh, transmission in the alveoli? You know, if you got a patient like, let's say, a drowning patient, where their lungs are filled with fluid and they're really not getting any O2 across, well, you know, that person would become cyanotic pretty damn quick. But if you got an asthmatic who's still moving air and is still saturating hemoglobin, just not as much as they need to, it's going to take a much longer period of time for them to look cyanotic. So, so go ahead. I was just going to say, before we move into hypoglycemia, I've had the good fortune to, like I said, to present with you on the road and road to say the thing that I have, we haven't talked about a lot. We've talked about uh, many of the physiological signs of hypoxia, hypoxemia. What about mental status? The change yeah, that, in mental that, status with this. Yes. And that's in that, you know, and that's there again, you know, the other one that I always, you know, uh, hit hard on is aerobic and anaerobic metabolism. And again, a lot of people said, well, I learned that in ninth grade biology. I did. In ninth grade biology, learning about aerobic and anaerobic metabolism, thinking, when the heck am I ever going to need this in my life? You know, believe it or not, I use that every day to explain things. And, you know, and that all goes back, Dan, to the aerobic versus the anaerobic. And we know the aerobic metabolism put a glucose molecule into a cell and metabolizes it. And if oxygen is available, it produces large amounts of ATP, 36, 38 molecules of ATP. But if we don't have the oxygen available, this is what's happening in the brain cell. Without the oxygen available, glucose, we know is the major energy source for the brain cell. Glucose gets in the brain cell. It produces two molecules of ATP because the initial part of the metabolism is anaerobic whether it's aerobic or anaerobic state, that first part, glycolysis, produces two molecules of ATP. So you got a little bit of energy, but then when it gets in the mitochondria without the oxygen, what is the brain cell making? It's making no ATP and lots of acid because it doesn't have oxygen. If we don't have the ATP, we don't have the energy to make that brain cell work. And if the brain cell doesn't work, what do we see? Alter mental status. I mean, if the brain cell the group of brain cells that allows you to tell the EMT or the paramedic your name is not producing enough ATP, they're not going to tell you their name. And that, and, and this is how this is so clinically related. But be, before we move on, here's another question I pose to my students with that anemia. Is question. this one of your one more things? <laughs> one more thing. One more, one more thing. thing. But it makes sense. If you have a trauma patient, 
you know, and you go to a scene and you have a trauma patient. Let's say you have a patient driving a car down the road at 65 miles an hour, uh, whatever happens, and they, they hit a uh, concrete, you know, barrier at 65 miles an hour. Unrestrained patient, and you're looking at your patient, when you get on the scene, and you go in to assess your patient, and you got this trauma patient, looks like they have some chest trauma just by the, the mechanism that they were unrestrained, they probably went forward, it was a frontal collision, hit the steering wheel, and they're severely cyanotic. You're already seeing cyanosis. Where do you see cyanosis first? Circumorally, you know, around the mouth, you know, you'll see in the conjunctiva, the oral mucosa, the fingertips, but you're already starting to see cyanosis in this patient. You just got on the scene. You go into the driver's side door and you're looking at the patient and going, oh, crap, this guy's cyanotic. Now, you got to ask yourself right there clinically, me personally, I'm going to say this guy's got a bad chest injury, a chest injury that's interfering with his ability to either ventilate or oxygenate. And somebody else is going to say, oh, no, he's in shock. You say, well, why don't I think he is losing a lot of blood? Now, he could be losing blood, but why is it that I'm not thinking that this condition right away, why am I thinking immediately we got a severe respiratory ventilation issue because of the severe hypoxia, because of the hypoxia or the cyanosis? Say, well, why not? Why am I not thinking that he's bleeding out? Maybe he lacerated a pulmonary vessel. Because in order to change the skin color, you have to have hemoglobin. If the guy's bleeding out into his chest or bleeding out into his belly or bleeding out on the ground, he's losing whole blood. Whole blood has red blood cells, red blood cells, hemoglobin. He looks what? Pale. He doesn't look cyanotic. Although he might be hypoxic, he's like now the anemic patient. He doesn't have the hemoglobin to make him look cyanotic. But the patient with the severe chest injury, who now can't ventilate appropriately, maybe he's got a big flail chest or something, or has some major pulmonary contusion, he's got blood volume. He just can't get the oxygen into the blood because of a ventilation or oxygen disturbance. He's looking cyanotic. So clinically, I think a lot of people, a lot of people just said, "Wow!" And we all know those patients when we say, "Oh crap," or worse, yeah. right? That's a that's a clinical response to this is bad. But now you know right. why. And and I used to, and this these are those little things. And you know, we wrote the AMLS book. You know the you know the original AMLS book, and our whole intention yep. was, how do we bring those years of clinical experience to new providers. And this is one of those things. When you walk up to a patient involved in a trauma or you walk up to any patient and you see severe cyanosis, either they've been hypoxic for a long period of time or they have a severe ventilation or oxygen diffusion problem. But if you walk up to a trauma patient shot in the chest and they're looking cyanotic already when you get on the scene, I'm not much, I'm not two worried right now about severe blood loss. I'm worried about severe hypoxia, hypoxemia, or ventilation disturbance. Those are those little right. clinical signs and symptoms and clues. And this is where pathophys makes sense. All right. You're taking a breath. So I'm going to move to number three. We have right. about 15 minutes for this one. Uh, we know we're going to have a two-part episode. There's so much to cover here. Number three, 
hypoglycemia is easier to understand than you might think, right? I mean, today we pull out the blood glucose monitor. You know, we didn't have that. I, mean, I don't want to sound like the old guys, but we didn't have that. But now everybody just pulls out the blood glucose monitor and gets an answer. But you probably could tell a lot even before you use that blood glucose monitor. And quite frankly, we should use that. And it might even tell us better when to use the blood glucose monitor. Absolutely. Yeah, Dan, you remember the days where we used the chem strips, where you took the drop of yeah. blood, you put it on the chem strip, then you had to wait 90 seconds. Then you had to have a water source. I remember being out on the street, you're like, where's my water source? And we'd get a bottle of sterile water and pour it over the chem strip and compare the color to the side of the bottle. That's where we came from. And those were very inaccurate. So we absolutely had to know clinical signs and symptoms of hypoglycemia. So here's another thing, you know, teaching students, teaching EMTs, teaching paramedics. Two weeks after their exam on endocrinology, I would ask students, so what are the signs of hypoglycemia versus diabetic ketoacidosis? Um, well, what's the skin like in hypoglycemia versus DK? Uh, well, one's warm and one's which one? And, you know, we know this, that you take an exam two weeks later, I was terrible at this. This is why I had to understand, because I was terrible at memorizing. Two weeks later, I'd be like, I don't remember which group goes with what, what's what, and so forth. And so to understand, and I started looking at hypoglycemia, like hypoglycemia is so simple to understand the clinical presentation. Again, this relates back to clinical presentation and patient assessment findings. And here's the thing, Dan, you hit it. We got a blood glucose monitor. But these clinical signs and symptoms are going to tell you something about severity too and trending. It's trending. What are these doing? Are they improving? Are they staying the same? Are they getting worse? Because that's going to tell you something too. We know blood glucose monitors a lot of times are not calibrated, especially being on the ambulance. Sometimes the strips are out of date or they're affected by light, heat, cold, and they're not providing the most accurate, you know, reading. So we got to keep that in mind. So again, knowing clinically what's happening in this patient is so important. So I say understanding hypoglycemia is simple because you only need to know two things. One, the question you posed earlier was, well, what about altered mental status? You know, well, how does this patient who's hypoxic start developing an altered mental state? Not, you didn't ask how, but just pointing out that altered mental status is a, is a huge key. Well, that's a huge key in the hypoglycemic patient, because what do we know about brain cells? Brain cells can pretty much only use glucose as an energy source. Brain cells can't store it. They can't make it. They can't suck it up and concentrate it from the blood. They just get whatever is being sent to them through perfusion. And so if we have a patient whose blood glucose level goes down, now we have a diabetic patient who uh, their insulin pump, you know, goes haywire and is injecting way too much insulin, or they're injecting themselves with insulin and they take way too much. And there's also now some of the hypoglycemic, uh, anti-hypoglycemic, um, or I'm sorry, the uh, hypoglycemic agents I'm not saying that right. The drugs that people are taking that are type 2 diabetics, um, they, they also could produce hypoglycemia. It's a rare event, but it can occur. 
And it's like some of these drugs, because some of these drugs, what they do is they stimulate the pancreas to make more insulin. And if they forgot that they took their, you know, their oral, uh, you know, hypoglycemic agent, they take it again. And then they've forgotten and they take it again for lunch. And, and all of a sudden they're overdosing themselves and their pancreas is just screaming out insulin. It's no different than somebody taking a syringe of insulin and then injecting it three times. So they could become hypoglycemic too. Keep that in mind because a lot of times we've beaten people's heads. Well, they got to be a type 1 diabetic that's injecting insulin or somebody who's type 2 that's injecting insulin or has insulin pump. That's not necessarily true. But what do we know? We know we go back to our aerobic metabolism and we say, well, if the brain can pretty much only use glucose to make energy and now we don't have enough glucose available. Well, we don't have enough glucose available to make energy. So that means we don't have enough energy for the brain cells to work. And what do we see clinically? Altered mental status. Everything from, from confusion to complete coma. Seizures are actually a relatively rare event in hypoglycemia. I think we pushed that for a long time. Like, oh my God, people are going to seize. They, they're they are more predisposed to seizures than when they're not hypoglycemic. But it's not as common. I know I read one statistic. It was less than 30%. Um, I think it was actually down to 13% of patients in hypoglycemia actually have seizures. And they got to be really severely hypoglycemic too. And so you say, so what's one group of signs and symptoms that we will see? They're called neuroglucopenic or neuroglycopenic. And what that means is neuro, all you got to think is neuro, gluco, neuro, glyco, and that's, and the peanut part is being caused by, and you say, there's a lack of glucose in the brain cell, and the brain cell can't make energy, so it doesn't work. What do we see clinically? Altered mental status. That's one huge group. There's only two groups, one huge group. So what do we see in a hypoglycemic patient? Altered mental status. And that onset is what? fast because as soon as you're not getting the glucose into the cell it can't make energy and when it can't make energy what do we see alterations in mental status okay one thing that all you need to know is we have gluco or we have uh, counter regulatory hormones um, when we have disturbances with glucose and the main ones are glucagon okay then we have insulin we have glucagon and we know that when the blood glucose level is going down, glucagon is being secreted from the pancreas, okay, from the alpha cells in the pancreas, and they're secreting the glucagon. And the glucagon's job is to do what? Take glycogen that's stored in the liver, convert it back to glucose and put it back into the blood, and take non-carbohydrates and start converting them and trying to make glucose out of them. And that's a long process. That doesn't occur real quick. But we know there's another hormone that's a counter-regulatory hormone, and that's epinephrine. So not only is epinephrine the fight or flight hormone, you know, increasing the heart rate and increasing the systemic vascular and so forth, epinephrine is a counter-regulatory hormone. Epinephrine also has the ability to stimulate glycogenolysis, which is taking glycogen in the liver and converting it back to glucose, trying to raise the blood glucose level, and taking non-carbohydrates, gluconeogenesis, and trying to convert them and make glucose. So epinephrine has very similar properties as glucagon. So it's considered also a counter-regulatory hormone. So when your blood glucose level is falling, 
when the blood glucose level hits 70 milligrams per deciliter is when you start now dumping glucagon, okay? You shut off insulin and you start putting glucagon out there. As the blood glucose level continues to fall, epinephrine starts getting secreted too. Because epinephrine, along with glucagon, is trying to assist the glucagon in raising the blood glucose level by converting the glycogen and making non-carbohydrates into glucose. But what do we know are the, what are the side effects when glucagon is circulating in the or I'm sorry, when, when epinephrine is circulating in the body, what are the side effects? Increased heart That's rate. It's going to look, yep, it's going to look like shock. It's going to look like what? And Dan, when you went through your EMT class, what did they call hypoglycemia, remember? Insulin shock. Insulin shock. And that is exactly why they called it insulin shock, because now the hypoglycemic patient presents as a patient that looks like they're in shock. I always said, I, I used to tell my students, I could send you out the room, bring you back in, lay down two people, and I could ask you, here, one's hypoglycemic and one is a, in a poor perfusion state because they're losing blood in their belly. And just by looking at them, you tell me which is which, and they wouldn't be able to tell because both of them are doing what? Dumping out tons of epinephrine for totally different reasons. So in the hypoglycemic patient, you don't need to memorize anything. All you need to memorize is if I don't put glucose into the brain cell, the brain cell doesn't work right. What do I see? Altered mental status. And when the blood glucose level is going down, not only is glucagon getting secreted and being pumped out throughout the body, but so is epinephrine. And what am I seeing? What's another thing that hypoglycemic patients have a tendency to, to do? Have tremors. Why are they having tremors? Because epinephrine has beta 2 and beta 2 is stimulating the skeletal smooth muscle. So so this this all makes sense. And I always laugh. I say, you remember those days working 24-hour shifts? You know, you get in at 7 in the morning, you check your ambulance, and boom, you get banged out on your first call. And it's 9 o'clock at night, and you're finally getting to eat. Or, it, it, you know, anybody. If you got this day, and you're not eating, you're not eating, you go all day, you go all day, and all of a sudden, you're starving. And now, what do you notice? My heart rate is elevated. I'm shaky. My skin is cool and clammy. Can't Why concentrate is that? and focus. Yeah. You can't concentrate and focus. You have, you're irritable, hangry, right? Irritability. <laughs> What's that coming from? That's coming from that epinephrine dump. That's that epinephrine dump because all of a sudden your glucagon is saying, man, I need some help. So epinephrine gets secreted. That's, you don't it need to memorize. Sense. Makes it all sense. makes sense. And I think that we look at this. We're talking about hypoglycemia, but we're seeing some of the contrast here. We don't have the time to get into a full hyperglycemia thing, but because of dehydration, they're going to have dry skin. They're going to have a more gradual onset. They're going to have a much different uh, approach. But if you found a patient without trauma that looks like they're in shock, you can now say, all right, the body's releasing epinephrine. They're in some kind of crisis. And it makes your list of differentials change dramatically. And the other thing with the two, Dan, is again in trending, and this is why this is so important with trending, is if the heart rate continues to go up, the skin is becoming more pale, cooler, and this, you know, the diaphoresis is worsening, you know, and the respiratory rate's going up and so forth. Well, the, we're not treating the glucose level effectively. Because if the glucose level was going up, heart rate should be coming down, 
skin should be start going back to normal. You know, here's another thing I always ask my students too. Why is it that your patient who's in hypovolemic shock, their skin's only clammy, but your your patient who's hypoglycemic, these patients, you've seen them, they're soaking wet. I mean, they look like they got oh, yeah. out of a swimming pool. They are not clammy. They are severely diaphoretic. You say, well, why? The sweat glands are both being stimulated by the same thing, alpha-1, by the circulating epinephrine. But what's the difference? The hypovolemic patient doesn't have the volume to sweat. They're losing it in their belly or on the ground. The diabetic patient has all their volume. So they're sweating off all that plasma volume, tons of it. And so that's why they present as severely diaphoretic. These people are soaking wet because they have the volume to sweat. I hope that there's people listening that just get these wow moments. Even if it's something that you've learned, I just think Joe's presentations are are just really amazing. Now, we're going to call this episode right now. We knew it was going to take two to be able to get all the information out here, and and that's okay. If we do our seven things over two episodes, I consider this a gift to be able to get explanations like this. So I'm going to invite you back for the second uh, episode, the second half of this seven things EMS, and this is pathophysiology and assessment. Our goal in doing this is to have you look at your patients and understand like never before. So thank you, Joe, for this first episode, and we'll come back and we'll do episode number two. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to another Limer Education Continuing Education Podcast. For more podcasts that are relevant to your practice of EMS, limereducation.com slash seven things.